This is Connected Nation, a podcast focused on all things broadband, from closing the digital divide to improving your internet speeds. We talk technology topics that impact all of us, our families, and our communities. Throughout February, we're focusing on Black History Month and talking with those in the Black community who are creating positive impact through technology. Today, our guest is the Lieutenant Governor of Michigan, Garland Gilchrist II, who has focused his career and time in public service on spearheading work for equality and justice while harnessing technology to solve real-world problems. Learn now he is turning ideas into action, creating innovative change through technology, and what advice the Lieutenant Governor can offer other leaders across the country. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Connected Nation. I'm Jessica Denson. Today, our guest is the 64th Lieutenant Governor of the state of Michigan, Garland Gilchrist II. And I want to be sure to point out that the Lieutenant Governor is breaking barriers as the first African-American to serve in this role. Welcome, Lieutenant Governor. Jessica, it's really good to be here with you. We really appreciate you joining us. I know you're very busy, and I know there's always the luxury of talking about your background, so I'd really like to delve into that a little as we set the stage for our listeners across the country. You're born and bred from Michigan, from Detroit in particular. Tell us a little bit about your family and time growing up there. I appreciate that, Jessica. Yes, I was born in the city of Detroit. I I live in Detroit with my family now, actually, and you know, my parents were... um, just a, I think just, I think we had a very traditional migration story that Black folks have had from the South coming up to the North in Michigan with my grandparents coming up from Alabama and Arkansas. And then my mother, you know, my parents were the first in their generation to go to college. My mother worked for General Motors for more than 30 years. My father worked for the Department of Defense for more than 30 years. And they really, you know, uh, laid a strong foundation for me. And I ultimately fell in love with technology because of my grandma, Doris, though. She, she bought me a computer when I was five years old. I was the first kid on my block on the east side of Detroit to get a computer. And I fell in love with that thing immediately. And, and my parents really let me love it. They let me, um, you know, they, they let me just have access to technology and control over it. And that really laid the foundation for, for the thing that I chose to do as a, as a student and as a professional. So your grandma, Doris, uh, that's really forward thinking for um, earlier generations, don't you think? To think, oh, yeah. my, my grandson really needs this to move forward. In life. Yeah. And, and, you know, my grandma, got rest her soul, we laid her to rest in, seven, in 2017. And honestly, I don't know what prompted that. I don't know if she saw a commercial or something, but she decided that her baby needed to have a computer. And so <laughs> she she went and got me this computer and it was great. And, and I think the important thing that it showed me, though, was that it gave me a level of comfort and control over technology. I felt like I could make technology do what I wanted it to do, not the technology had control over me. And, and that's very powerful to have people have that feeling about technology. That is very powerful. And you really took that to heart because you graduated from the University of Michigan with a Bachelor of Science in Engineering. And you also have degrees in computer science and computer engineering. So with that foundation, just your love of it, is that what led you into those careers? Yeah, that curiosity that was peaked again when I was five and really stuck with me. I remember, you know, my my family lived in Detroit and then we moved to the suburb of Farmington halfway through my childhood. And I remember taking like my first programming class in high school, my my senior high school. And it was actually a really great learning experience because our teacher was also learning how to program at the same time. So we had this this really collaborative, (laughs) making mistakes together and finding bugs and stuff. And so 
that, that just showed me that this can be fun. You can learn and you can also create things, you know, from nothing. You can make a computer do something that it couldn't do before, or you can see things that, that weren't possible before. And so that coupled with my first job was actually building computers with my own hands that I installed in uh, the rec centers across the city of Detroit. Um, that's really what, what led me um, to want to stay in technology and also introduced me to what the power uh, that was held in showing people the internet for the first time. Yeah. And you really kind of are paying it forward there. If you're taking these to rec centers across the country or across your, your city, um, sharing kind of what grandma Doris started. Am I right? Absolutely. My grandma was a, was a social studies teacher in Detroit public schools for more than 30 years. And she, I mean, she was a person who really believed in exposing me to experiences. She was the first person who took me to Lansing, Michigan, our state capital, for example, so I could see the seat of our state government. She was the first person. She took me to an opera. She took me to the symphony. She was all about exposure as a way to educate. And I think the internet and it's, and it's, you know, the best version of it is about exposing people to things they wouldn't normally have access to if they have access to the internet. And I, I bet your grandma Doris would be pretty excited that you are in the role that you have now as Lieutenant Governor. I think that's a pretty good look for a social studies teacher to have their, <laughs> yeah. their, their, their grandson be an elected official. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before becoming Lieutenant Governor, you worked for Microsoft in helping build what's called SharePoint. And uh, I looked into SharePoint. It's the fastest growing product in the company's history. Share a little bit about your role in that. That's pretty exciting. Um, most people understand and know Microsoft, but what was it like working within that type of company? Yeah, so I actually, my, my Microsoft story starts out as an intern, actually, after my sophomore year at University of Michigan. I interned with Microsoft, and that was the first of three internships I did with the company on the SharePoint team. SharePoint is this, you know, business collaboration and document management software that a lot of businesses use. And um, I worked on the performance team to help make sure that as large organizations used it, that it would perform well, it would be fast and responsive for them. Um, but really, what this taught me is several things. One, uh, both of my education, and my experience at Microsoft, taught me how technology can be solved, can use to solve problems. And, and I'm a problem solver at heart. That's what engineering is, is solving problems, breaking complex problems down to simple problems and trying to solve them. And I think about that every day now as a policymaker and as a public servant. You know, there are challenges that exist before us and we need to figure out how to address those challenges in the smartest, most efficient way, given the information we have and the resources we have. And um, I think because of my specific technology background, I am not afraid to apply a technical solution to a problem if we use that technology in the right way. You really shifted into a different role when you went and worked for the city of Detroit later as a director of innovation and emerging technology. Speaking to exactly what you're, you're saying now, uh, what were some of the challenges that you noticed the city had early on? What are some wins that you made in this space? Some lessons that maybe other leaders could take from that level of dealing with technology and innovation? Well, my path to city government was not a direct one. So mm -hmm. I thought I started out as a software engineer, and then I took a, a five-year uh, stint in Washington, D.C., working as a community organizer, actually working on campaigns for economic, social, and racial justice uh, and voting rights and things like that. It was the combination of those experiences that I applied when I came home to Detroit in 2014 to work in city government. It was about how technology can help people not only realize their power and potential, 
but how it can help solve problems, but also how you needed to have a way for people to communicate with one another to understand what the right problems were to solve. And so I thought about those two things as I, as I jumped in. And really the, the deep challenge that I think city government was faced with at that time was rebuilding trust. You know, we were a community that had lost trust in government over a generation for a number of reasons, whether that was broken promises or failed leadership. Trust was a real problem. And so when I, I got there and got started along with my, my, my boss, the chief information officer of the city, Beth Niblock, who was an amazing woman and leader, you know, we talked about what things like open data would mean in terms of really showing people the work of the government and how showing your work could be a way to build or rebuild trust. And so one of the early wins for me and for our, for our us was to write the city's first open data policy uh, that was signed by executive order by the mayor in February of 2015, uh, creating the city's first open data portal uh, that's still alive and functioning, working with community stakeholders to teach people um, from all walks of life about how to use it, both to understand city government and to hold city government accountable. It was really an exciting way to, to show people how they could have access to their government and how having that access could change their relationship with the government. And that's ultimately, I think, very empowering for people. Yeah, and there really is something to be said for transparency, I think, at all levels, that that people respond to that, to know that the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, you could you could really answer ask real questions and get answers that make sense that to have that transparency is so important. And that's interesting how you're using data and technology to play that role. Absolutely. And again, I have to credit uh, leadership again, our CIO, Beth Niblock, she uh, was really fearless and, and committed to that. Like we're going to tell the truth. And um, if something isn't great, we're going to show that it's not great and show that we have a plan to fix it. And it was really something I learned from her as a leader, why that's an important a way to approach, again, how you deal and interact with the people who you serve. And so it was really important. In preparing for this conversation, I asked the executive director of Connected Nation Michigan, Eric, to tell me a little bit about you because he's worked with you on some of these technology issues. And he said to me that the lieutenant governor really cares about digital literacy and digital inclusion, that those are important issues for, for you. Each, I, I think each deserves a little bit of individual attention. So can we start a little bit and talk about how you view digital literacy in this larger landscape as a leader in the state? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think we need to have a broad understanding of what it means to be literate today and going forward. Um, that there is, you know, literacy in, in terms of literally knowing how to read. There's literacy or numeracy in terms of numbers and how to work with numbers. And digital literacy is really about, again, a comfort and understanding of technology such that you can, you know, use technology as the tool that it was intended to be. I think about, you know, Steve Jobs's definition of a personal computer as being a bicycle for the mind. That means it is a tool to enable the mind to do things in a better and more efficient way if used properly. And so I think digital literacy is about how do we equip people with the skills and the resources and the experiences so they can have that kind of relationship with technology. And so even if you solve some of the challenges, and I think there are really three challenges when it comes to um, addressing access to the internet, one is literal access, building out, like how can the internet physically and literally be available to someone. Then there's a second problem related to affordability of the internet in terms of where the service is available. Is it 
does is it affordable to the people who live in that community and accessible? And then digital literacy is if you have access, if you can't afford it, do you have what you need to take full advantage and embrace the technology? And so when we're talking about investments in digital literacy, it's again, it's skill, skill building, it's, it's experiences to make sure that people have that comfort to be able to do just that and use it for whatever they want to use it for. You can use it for entertainment or education or access to jobs or research or telemedicine, which has been even more important in the pandemic, um, whatever makes sense for you in your context of your life, having a, a full complement of digital literacy tools helps you be able to fully access it. While we're on the topic of digital literacy, I want to bring up that you are, you tackled this as the founding executive director of the Center for Social Media Responsibility. The idea that there are also dangers attached to accessing the internet that we need to be aware of. Um, what led you to tackle some of that? Um, obviously, some there are some issues with separating fact from fiction uh, or some dangers when it comes to kids being online. What What's kind of your approach to that? You worked with the University of Michigan Detroit Center on this issue. Yeah, so the Center for Social Media Responsibility at the University of Michigan School of Information uh, was a really important project. And, and what it looked at was the fact that the the companies, the, the these sort of public social media platforms that exist and that people spend so much time on and 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 send so much information to and through that they have a responsibility in terms of how they handle that information and handle the relationships of the people that would that who are the users of their platforms and, and how those users interact that they have a responsibility to those users and to society at large and so the, the center was really created to explore that responsibility and to then help those platforms navigate those responsibilities in, in the right way. And so we, we, we thought a lot about, we had worked with some fantastic researchers in the School of Information who looked at everything from, you know, the, the contours of misinformation and disinformation to understanding how uh, crowds can take things in positive and negative directions. Mm -hmm. And then also looking at those those questions around internet safety and, and healthy conversation and productive conversation on the internet. How do we manage civility? Um, how do we deal with polarization? Uh, these are very big and important questions that certainly had huge political implications coming into and through this previous you know, presidential election cycle uh, coming on the heels of the 2016 presidential election. I think these are questions that are going to be with us as we think about what our media environment looks like going forward. So I think about that too when we're when we as an administration are trying to communicate, you know, with the people who we serve and, and doing so in an information environment that is kind of a mess. It it is really kind of a mess. I, I can understand why people struggle with knowing what's true and what's not true. Uh, you, you touched on the issue of digital inclusion just just uh, just slightly. I'd like to, to expand upon that a little bit. As I mentioned at the top of the, this podcast, uh, we're marking the importance of Black History Month. And part of that is being aware of what's happening now in our current role, in our current environment for communities of color. Uh, you're not only the first African-American to serve as the lieutenant governor of Michigan, but you're also leading a statewide task force examining racial disparities in the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell us a little bit about your role there, where technology plays a pl has a place in all of this um, in the framework of COVID and beyond after hopefully this pandemic someday ends um, when it comes to community of colors and the disparities that are there. Yes, yeah, so I want to take a step back on this because it's really important. And I think the story of Michigan's COVID-19 response is, is a story of representation, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So our state, you know, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is the second woman to ever be the governor of the state of Michigan. 
Uh, I'm the first black person, a black man in my role. Then our chief medical executive is a black woman named Dr. Jonay Khaldun. And I mentioned that that triumvirate, that leadership team, because we're the most diverse leadership team in the country responding to COVID-19. There's no leadership team that looks like ours in Michigan. And that representation, I think, has led to a different understanding or sensibility about how to respond to the pandemic that recognizes and that has responded to directly and unapologetically the racial disparities that have been made more apparent by the pandemic when it comes to health outcomes, economic outcomes, access to education, and access to technology. And so as part of that response, Michigan really prioritized collecting data on race and ethnicity when it came to things like coronavirus test results and COVID-19 deaths. And we were one of the first states to report that publicly. And we were the first state to establish a you know full-throated, funded, statewide task force to examine racial disparities that I share, as you, as you described. And so what we have found working with every department in state government and with 24 amazing minds representing all walks of life and all racial and ethnic groups uh, in Michigan um, is that when you focus on a problem, you can make progress on solving it. And so when we focused on the problem of addressing the mortality rate disparities in COVID-19, we were able to come up with programs to get people connected to health insurance who didn't have health insurance, to get people connected to primary care physicians who didn't have doctors, to get people masked who didn't have access to masks, to have targeted communications campaigns that focused on how to do social distancing and, and how to wear masks properly, to innovate with you know, drive-through testing because we're Michigan and we invent we can invent a way to do anything in a car. So we invented drive <laughs> for people who don't have access to their own car, like thirty percent of Detroiters, for example. We in- innovated mobile testing units that will literally take a specially outfitted Ford van and drive a bunch of tests to a community center, to a jail, to a park, to a church, to a neighborhood, and to be able to have access to testing for all the people there. We use federal funds to to fund community-based organizations across a wide array of interventions to deal with the social determinants of health. So not just the direct needs for the pandemic response, like PPE and stuff like that, but also things like responding to the needs of of children who may have extraordinary needs with their education, but that are not well-served due to remote learning. Um, and investing in those kinds of solutions. So we've learned ways to be equitable in our response. And I think that is part of why our state response has been so strong. So not to keep you all day, but what's the next step for Michigan in this space? What are some big ideas that you would like to see? Uh, my Our vice president of digital inclusion, Heather Gate, is always telling me we've made so much progress because of the pandemic and people being aware of this need for access that we don't want to take steps backwards. So uh, what, do you, what do you hope to see for Michigan in this space? What's next or any final thoughts that you'd want to leave us with? Well, we we have a lot of work to do to connect the people of Michigan. I want the state of Michigan to be the first state in the country that does connect all of its people. We have a history of making connections in Michigan, whether it's connecting people um, to experiences through their cars, whether it was literally connecting the two peninsulas of Michigan with the Mackinac Bridge. I think we do the same thing with connecting people to all that the internet has to offer. And so uh, we tried to get to work quickly to recognize that there were so many families with school-aged children that did not have internet-enabled devices nor internet access that we had to deal with early in the pandemic. 
But now we're looking for some robust solutions. And so that's why we've taken action through grant programs at the state level to deal with the access question. We're challenging folks to and, and providers across the state from all different regions of the state to, to innovate when it comes to affordability models. And we're very eager to work with the Biden-Harris administration and the FCC on um, what can happen from the federal level in terms of leveraging federal resources from, from every you know part of the government to make sure that people have access to the internet that they can afford and they have access to the skill building and literacy programs to make it so. Uh, I'm really eager and optimistic though. People see the value of the internet in a different way because of the pandemic. And I don't think we're gonna really walk backwards in terms of that perception. Now we have to put in place the policy framework, uh, the infrastructure, and the business models uh, to make that happen. And I want Michigan to really be a leader in that space. All right, Lieutenant Governor, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your point of view and your expertise in this area. Thank you, Jessica. It was my pleasure. Again, my guest today was Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, who is the first African-American to serve in that role for the state of Michigan. If you'd like to learn more about the Lieutenant Governor, check the description of this podcast for links to his Twitter feed and state profile. I'm Jessica Denson. Thanks for listening to Connected Nation. If you like our show and want to know more about us, head to ConnectedNation.org or look for the latest episodes of Connected Nation on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Pandora, or Spotify.